Hello. You waited so long for this episode to come out, but allow me to delay you just a few seconds longer with a very brief request. The long-term success of this podcast is wholly reliant on the good works of those who enjoy it, specifically by those people sharing the show on social media or talking to a friend about it out there in the real world. You can also support the show financially, if you like, with a Patreon subscription, which would make me very happy. More info on that in the show credits. Thank you for listening. Sirs, we take this method of calling your attention to the advantages of private police patrol in case you are at any time in need of such services. The Pinkerton Preventative Patrol was organized by the late Alan Pinkerton in 1850, it being the first uniformed police patrol in the city of Chicago, and from that time to date has had under its charge as watchmen all the banks and nearly all the wholesale and large retail business houses in Chicago. The members of this force are selected for their general aptitude for police duty and are under strict discipline and in charge of experienced officers who have been trained to the business. We are therefore prepared to furnish uniformed men whenever required, by the day, week, or month, for day or night duty. And we respectfully call the attention of those in charge of excursions, proprietors of public resorts, railroad, and all other corporations who have to deal with large numbers of patrons or disaffected or striking employees to the advantage of our patrol system. The Pinkerton Preventative Patrol has furnished the police for the Hawking Valley Coal and Iron Company of Ohio during their recent protracted strike, Chicago Wilmington and Vermilion Coal Company of Illinois, Menominee Mining Company of Menominee, Michigan, Muskegon Lumber Merchants of Muskegon, Michigan, Lumber Merchants of Saginaw City, Michigan, Rochester and Pittsburgh Railroad and Coal and Iron Company of Pennsylvania. Burden Iron Company of Troy, New York, and Troy Malleable Ironworks. Under its supervision was organized the first coal and iron police force in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, which was instrumental to great extent by aiding our detectives in suppressing the Molly Maguires throughout the coal fields of Pennsylvania and preserving order there during the railroad riots of 1877. Corporations or individuals desirous of ascertaining the feeling of their employees and whether they are likely to engage in strikes or joining any secret labor organization with a view of compelling terms from corporations or employers can obtain a detective suitable to associate with their employees and obtain this information. At this time, when there is so much disaffection among the laboring classes and secret labor societies are organizing throughout the United States, we suggest whether it would not be well for extensive employers of labor to keep a close watch for designing men among their own employees, who in the interests of secret labor societies are inducing their own employees to join these organizations and eventually cause a strike. It is frequently the case that by taking a matter of this kind in hand, in time, and discovering the ringleaders and dealing promptly with them, serious trouble may be avoided in the future. The reputation gained by the agency and patrol in the past will be a guarantee that any detective or officer furnished by us will be competent in every respect to discharge the duties required of him. 
Watchmen for stores, docks, shipping, etc. can be obtained at reasonable rates for permanent or special watching on application at either of the offices which are connected by telephone. Yours respectfully, Robert A. Pinkerton, General Superintendent, East Division, New York. William A. Pinkerton, General Superintendent, West Division, Chicago, Illinois. As language agglomerates onto itself over the centuries, it becomes unwittingly ornate. Take, for example, the English noun deputy, from which we dutifully formulate the verb deputize, heedless to the fact that when deputy found its way centuries ago into our mouths and quills, it brought with it a perfectly serviceable English verb, now rarely used, depute, which means to assign or to appoint. Well, the modern word deputize may be studied with rhinestones, but it does have the advantage of being specific. Every American knows what it means to deputize. It's in our foundational mythology. A beleaguered lawman somewhere on the frontier temporarily bestows some of his executive authority on one or more competent and willing auxiliaries. It's an essentially magical act like the miracle of the loaves and fishes, but instead of multiplying bread and sardines to nourish the multitudes, the lawman multiplies a tin star to consecrate a posse. The posse, or posse comitatus, emerged from the medieval English tradition of the hue and cry, which obligated anyone witnessing a crime to arouse their neighbors with shouting, or perhaps by blowing some kind of horn. All able-bodied men within earshot were expected to help chase down the offender. By the 9th century, the county or shire system was standardized across most of England by Alfred the Great. With the shire came the shire boss, called the reeve, and the Shire Reeve became our share if. Starting a little after the Norman Conquest, the office of constable represented the sheriff's authority at the town level. The word comes from an old Roman authority, the comestabili, master of stables, but by the time the term made it to Western Europe, it just meant something like commander or enforcer. So when new administrative roles were needed in feudal England to collect evidence, these proto-detectives were called constables too. In the 13th century, British cities that had grown too large for the hue-and-cry system started adopting the practice of the watch and ward, which assigned specific citizens to guard the city gates and patrol the streets. This rudimentary system of sheriffs, constables, and watchmen went relatively unchanged for the next several centuries in England, and with the settling of the Jamestown colony in 1607, it formed the basis of policing in British North America. As the frontier slowly migrated westward, it brought with it this common law authority even as older cities on the eastern seaboard continued to stay up to date with all the latest European policing innovations. Sheriffs in the American West were now popularly elected rather than appointed by the crown, and constables were more likely to be called marshals, from a German word also meaning stable keeper, but other than that the basic job descriptions were much the same as they had been since the writing of Beowulf. Posse comitatus means the power of the county. It's the sheriff's implicit authority to appoint citizens to the watch and ward. A sheriff could deputize any able-bodied person in their county, regardless of age, though before the 20th century the role was restricted to men. Like jury duty and the draft, 
Deputy service typically could not be refused, but unlike jury duty or the draft, it was not populated blindly. Sheriffs would overwhelmingly deputize people they knew personally or who were recommended to them by their trusted contacts, from the business community, say. Like a jury or an army of conscripts, the posse was ephemeral. Once a crisis was over, the wrongdoer caught or killed, it was dissolved without much ceremony. In early American cities, volunteer night watchmen began patrolling the streets in the late 1600s. In the slaveholding South, slave patrols were an all-too-real phenomenon, but in most cases they tended to rely on either volunteers or conscripts. Full-time professional police departments first emerged in the mid-19th century in the major cities. In rural America, though, even into the late 1800s, if the authorities needed warm bodies to enforce the law, they generally had to rely on amateurs. Even such a radical cultural transformation as the Industrial Revolution, the rise of factories and mass wage labor, did not immediately occasion a replacement of the centuries-old posse system outside of the major cities. But increasingly, sheriffs and other authorities found that when confronted with a full-on crowd, the posse system had some serious disadvantages. The labor historian J. Bernard Hogg posed the problem this way, quote, what was a sheriff to do when faced not by a relatively small number of criminals whom everyone recognized for what they were, but by hundreds and sometimes thousands of striking workers who were ordinarily peaceful, law-abiding citizens of a community? Could he call upon other citizens to drop their usual pursuits of life, take down their weapons, furnish their own food, and march against men who might be their own neighbors merely to secure for some mill owner the right to operate his mill as he saw fit? He goes on, public opinion was quite clear on the moral issue involved. Enforcement of the rights of the property holder, however, was another matter. Especially was this true when the striking employee evinced a propensity to meet force with force, gun with gun, and cracked skull with cracked skull. The sheriff and country confronted a new problem, close quote. Distrust of crowds dates back to at least the classical period, probably earlier. The deaths of both Socrates and Christ were blamed on mobs by Plato and the gospel authors, respectively. Roman leaders famously turned to bread and circuses to harness and diffuse the crowd's libido and bloodlust into what they hoped would be manageable proportions. Following the French Revolution in 1789, the strange wildness of crowds became a fashionable preoccupation of the new academic field of sociology. The French historian Hippolyte Taine saw the crowd as hopelessly, irredeemably sentimental and pre-rational. The sociologist Gabriel Tard said the crowd was a wild beast without a name, setting the stage for the father of crowd theory, sociologist Gustave Le Bon, whose 1895 book The Crowd argued that the crowd's transformative innocence and simplicity provided the perfect target for political opportunists and demagogues, who we would call today outside agitators, to press their cunning advantage on. Through what he dubbed the law of mental unity, LeBone believed that crowd psychology short-circuited the capacity for personal introspection so thoroughly that for most people, once in the grips of it, it was nearly impossible to find their way to moral reasoning. Crowd members had ceased to become individuals, able to act only in crude and primitive fashion. No mere crowd could ever hope to muster the creativity or insight needed to propel society forward. Only an individual could do that. 
the Italian sociologist and criminologist Scipio Segele took this line of thinking one step further. Crowds make good people bad. In 1840, at the height of the Jacksonian period in America, when anxieties about mob rule were rippling through society, a literary magazine called Atkinson's Casket ran a piece called The Man of the Crowd by Edgar Allan Poe. In this story, the protagonist sits in a London coffee house after just having recovered from an illness. His mood is exultant, and he takes sensual pleasure out of the most ordinary activities, reading the paper, watching the other patrons in the cafe, and finally, as night begins to fall, gazing on the bustle in the street outside. He spends some time observing the throng of people heading home from work or en route to dinner engagements or, or just up to no good, surveying them as they pass, the merchants, the aristocrats, the clerks, the peddlers, the gamblers, the pickpockets, and prostitutes. The narrator amuses himself with this activity for several hours until one face in particular, that of an old decrepit man, snaps him from his reverie. Alone among everyone he has been observing, the expression on this man's face is unique and inscrutable to him. It resists being catalogued. A confusion of contradictory impressions fills the narrator's mind, and he is compelled to rush into the street and follow the old man, hoping that closer observation will help him understand the man's place and the multitudes weaving around him. Through the streets of London, the narrator tails his subject, who seems to have nowhere in particular to go, with no hurry to get there. When the sun comes up, the narrator is briefly startled to find himself outside the coffee house he started from. But he gathers himself together and continues his pursuit through the next day until evening comes again. And finally, exhausted and still having learned nothing coherent from his chase, he resorts to one last deep, hard look into the old man's face before leaving him to continue his wanderings unmolested. He concludes in defeat that the old man is unknowable and unfathomable, saying... This old man is the type and the genius of deep crime. He refuses to be alone. He is the man of the crowd. It will be in vain to follow, for I shall learn no more of him, nor of his deeds. The crowd is untruth, wrote Soren Kierkegaard, a few years after Poe's story was published. Even if every individual possessed the truth in private, he continued, if they came together in a crowd, untruth would at once be let in. Kierkegaard reasoned that since God offers his children salvation or damnation on an individual basis, soul by soul, then to take one's place in a crowd is to deny him the substrate by which he would judge you. It would be impossible to as much as say or hear a true thing without God's direct mediation, since how could the wellspring of truth itself not participate in its transmission? Taking one's place in a crowd, then, is to become unseen by God, which is to say, unreal. Try to share a truth with a crowd, and you become a statistic, a specimen, a representation, an unsold non-self. Kierkegaard's biggest concern about crowds was the erosion of personal accountability. An anonymous person in a crowd might say things they never would have the courage to express alone without fear of reprisal. Only individuals can apprehend the divine. Only individuals can be truly free, which to Kierkegaard meant first and foremost, the freedom to commit acts of martyrdom. Writing about 90 years later, in the pause between two world wars, Walter Benjamin looked around him at the lingering generational trauma of total war and described the individual of his day as, quote, screaming like a newborn baby in the dirty diapers of the present. 
The ability to directly speak of their experience from mouth to ear had been taken away from the soldiers who returned home from the Great War. They had nothing true to relate except for a litany of pointless atrocities that they did not want to speak aloud and which no one around them wanted to hear. Into the vacuum created by this dearth of shared experience, Benjamin said, gushed an overflowing river of frivolous cultural forms, palmistry, astrology, spiritualism, abundant but unconnected to lived experience because magical thinking is private, it can't be shared. Looking anxiously ahead at the coming war, Benjamin wondered if the people of his milieu would be able to recognize their cultural bankruptcy and embrace what he called positive barbarianism, where, having dismissed the pretense of having a living, breathing culture, one is free to start from scratch and reconnect to the world of life and death. It's a strange choice of words, barbarianism. In episode four, I mentioned that barbarian was originally a Greek word for someone who didn't speak Greek, but that's not quite the case. The root word barbaros means babbler, implying that the person described spoke no actual language at all, that the best they could do was clumsily mimic human speech, or perhaps implying that the listener could not be bothered to figure out if there were languages other than their own, expressing thoughts and feelings just as sublime as theirs, or perhaps even more so. That might be something they prefer not to find out. To be a barbarian, therefore, was to lack civilization, even the ability to reason. In the place of reason, one was sure to find prejudice, superstition, cruelty, and violence, which is why it was so important to put up the strongest gates and fortifications against barbarians to keep them out. These caricatures don't seem like very good candidates, though, for the rejuvenation Benjamin was talking about. So what then? To illustrate what starting from scratch might look like, he offers the examples of Paul Clay and Albert Einstein, famously iconoclastic, practically avatars of individual achievement and contribution. But in mentioning this, I must admit that my language instantly struggles against me, gesturing back towards the paradox. The original prototypical iconoclasts in 8th century Byzantium were not mavericks, free thinkers, or lone wolves. They were military factotums carrying out the edict of their emperor, Leo III, to smash the holy icons in Byzantine churches. They were basically stormtroopers, utterly typifying Kierkegaard's description of the crowd as the nullification of the individual. Positive barbarianism eludes us again. In one of his most quoted lines, written shortly before his death in 1940, Benjamin declared, there is no document of civilization which is not at the same time a document of barbarism. By this time, war had come, and it's not impossible that the reality of it had shattered whatever hopefulness might have been ensconced in his call for a start from scratch just a few years before. But the German language also has its share of rhinestones. The German word Benjamin reaches for when describing horror and atrocity, as in this late 1940 quote, is Barbarei, meaning inhuman cruelty, barbarism. When proposing his positive barbarianism, though, he uses a different word, possibly one that he coined himself, barbarentum. In English, the literal translation would be something like barbarianhood or barbarianness. The literature scholar Kevin McLaughlin has suggested that the use of such a clunky made-up word may even be a little joke gesturing toward the way forward. The silly, unexpected word barbarianness breaks the spell. We can send home the barbarian from central casting and usher in the genuine article, the creative spirit who can erase the traces and build something new, however barbaric it might seem to people with too rigid a sense of civilization. 
As far as I've come into this digression, I might as well also wheel in one last famous quote about barbarism and culture, written in 1949 by Benjamin's friend and colleague, Theodor Adorno. Nach Auschwitz ein Gedicht zu schreiben ist barbarisch. Writing a poem after Auschwitz is barbaric. This utterance was taken by Adorno's readers to mean either that one could not or should not write poetry after Auschwitz, which seems so patently false that Adorno ended up disavowing the quote in later works. But maybe somewhere in the back of his mind, Adorno had been reminded of the positive barbarianism of his old friend, who, unlike Adorno, did not outlive the Third Reich and never had the chance to look back on it for lessons. Maybe writing a poem after Auschwitz demands a radical departure from the barbarism of the culture, high and low alike, that permitted the operation of the camps. At the end of his essay on experience and poverty, Benjamin nods again to the crowd, writing that culture and norms have become, quote, the monopoly of a few powerful people who, God knows, are no more human than the many. For the most part, they are more barbaric and not in the good way. Let us hope that from time to time, the individual will give a little humanity to the masses, who one day will repay him with compound interest. To return to Professor Hogg's question then, what was the sheriff to do? One answer was to cut the amateurs out of the loop by deputizing professional private detectives, the Pinkertons and their emulators. Pinkerton Prime was Alan Pinkerton, a Scottish immigrant who discovered a talent for detective work after stumbling upon a counterfeiting ring in the Illinois woods near the Chicago suburb of Dundee. After a brief stint on the payroll of the newly formed Chicago Police Department, he formed the Pinkerton Detective Agency in 1850, providing investigation services primarily to railroad companies. While Pinkerton agents did sometimes investigate train robberies, like the iconic one at the center of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, what the railroads really appreciated was the Pinkertons' use of spycraft to root out employee theft. In 1866, the Pinkerton Detective Agency sent guards to Braidwood, Illinois, just south of Joliet, to put down a coal miner's strike, beginning the era of the Pinkertons' greatest fame. It was during this period that the legendary Pinkerton agent, James McParland, went undercover in the ranks of the Workingmen's Benevolent Association in the anthracite coal fields of Pennsylvania. In 1892, when striking steel workers occupying the Carnegie Homestead Mill on the outskirts of Pittsburgh successfully drove off imported scab workers, the operators asked the sheriff to deputize a posse to take back the mill. The sheriff attempted to recruit 100 men, but was successful in deputizing only 11. When these 11 were also driven off by the strikers, the steel baron Henry Clay Frick hired 300 armed Pinkertons to mount an assault using river barges. But after a day-long battle, these detectives too were driven back by the strikers. The Union was defeated only after the governor called out 8,000 National Guardsmen who were able to take back control of the mill. Which brings us to a second answer to Professor Hogg's question. Where Pinkertons fall short, nothing beats the National Guard for crowd control. In going 
Going to Mr. Weitzel's office, as I was going in the door by appointment, I met two members of the militia coming out of the office. Afterwards, I asked an employee in the building if that was a usual incident, and he said, Oh yes, that happens nearly every day. We call that the military headquarters. I should be very glad to tell the commission the name of the man that made that remark privately, if desired. I asked Mr. Weitzel, with some emphasis, in regard to the statement that members of the militia were also drawing pay from coal companies. I told him that as a taxpayer, as a woman who was paying her part of the dollar a day that was being paid by the state to support each of these militiamen, I wanted to know why he was paying $3.50 to $4, because it seemed to me the thing for which I was paying my part of a dollar a day was directly the opposite for which he was paying $3.50 a day. And in a way, it would seem that those militiamen, if they did their duty to both of us, would have to ride horses going opposite directions. And he said, in response to that, that the company was good to the people who were good to them, and there was no reason why he should turn from those men who had been their employees just because the state chose to pay them also. I will say, with regard to my discussion with the militia, that I found perhaps, if you care to hear it, the secret, as it seemed to me, of the friction between the strikers and the militia, at least one of the sources of irritation. Perhaps I saw that more plainly because I have seen little boys playing with tin soldiers, and I know that the little boys in playing with their soldiers have to have one set of soldiers that are the enemy— And so I found that the militia going down into those southern coal fields, some of them perhaps in some way were not far beyond the little boy's stage, had followed that boyish example, and the leaders of the militia had considered that it was necessary to have an enemy, and they had chosen the strikers as that enemy. That was plainly shown in their talks with me. The attitude of the men with whom I spoke was plainly and strongly opposed to organized labor. There was a feeling of bitterness toward the strikers. This was so more particularly because they repeated constantly that the strikers were of such inferior character. One militiaman told me that had they been American men or men of higher intelligence, they would have gone back to work when the militia told them to, but that they would not do so, and they could not understand that they were being led by agitators. The whole situation was plainly a bitter one, the bitter situation that one would expect to find after months in which there had been two columns drawn up of idle men, the militia, and the strikers, with the open saloon always between them. You asked me a question to which this was, in a sense, preliminary, and which I wish you would repeat. At Ludlow, there were two guard detachments, Company K, commanded by Captain Philip Van Size, 
a young Denver lawyer, set up camp just across the railroad tracks from the Ludlow tent colony. Company B, assembled out of mine guards that Carl Linderfeld had already been commanding in Berwyn Canyon, was established just outside the canyon, about a mile and a half to the southwest of the Ludlow colony, on a rise called Cedar Hill. Carl Linderfeld had been a soldier and gunman for most of his life. After a bout of dysentery denied him his chance to ride up San Juan Hill with the Rough Riders, he was shipped to the Philippines in 1899 with the 4th Cavalry, where he learned how to administer the water cure, a form of torture that forces a victim to effectively choose between swallowing more water than their stomach can hold or drowning. One soldier describing the procedure said of its victims, they swell up like toads. The Philippines War began just as the Spanish-American War was drawing to a close. In December 1898, the Treaty of Paris ceded the Philippines to the United States, along with Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Guam. But there was one problem. In December 1898, the Philippines weren't really Spain's to give. A revolutionary independence movement called the Katipunan had been fighting the Spanish since 1896. After taking control of most of the main island of Luzon, they declared independence in June 1898, forming the first Philippine Republic, with Katipunero leader Emiliano Aguinaldo as president. Aguinaldo had just come out of exile to rejoin the revolution the previous May, with encouragement from the American consul to Singapore, E. Spencer Pratt, who was happy to let Aguinaldo believe that the U.S. would help the Katipuneros win their independence. The bait-and-switch was consummated in August 1898, when the U.S. and Spain, having already broadly agreed on peace terms, but formally still at war, staged a mock battle in Manila, choreographed to transfer the city from Spanish to American control without bloodshed, while keeping Aguinaldo's forces from entering the city. During the mock battle, the U.S. Navy bombarded an empty fort until the Spanish, reading from the same script, raised the white flag. As American infantry moved in to accept the surrender, they quickly took control of the Spanish trenches to make sure no one else came in after them. Aguinaldo was shut out of Manila, and for the next two years, American occupation of the Philippines would take the form of a counterinsurgency campaign, finally putting an end to the first Philippine Republic and assuming full civilian control of the country in July 1901. Linderfeld got a hardship discharge that year when his father died, putting him back in Colorado in time to help the National Guard break the Western Federation of Miners' strike in 1903, where he served under General Sherman Bell. Bell's civilian job in Colorado was managing a number of gold mining operations, but he was persuaded to take leadership of the National Guard when the mine owners promised to subsidize his salary as adjutant general so he wouldn't see any hit to his income. Sherman Bell described the Guard's engagement with the Western Federation of Miners this way. I came to do up this damned anarchistic federation. My orders were to wipe them off the face of the earth. The Western Federation of Miners would survive extermination, but just barely. They were driven out of Colorado completely, and within two years, President Charles Moyer and Secretary Big Bill Haywood found themselves facing trumped-up charges for the murder of Idaho Governor Frank Steunenberg. They would ultimately be exonerated, but the trial marked the end of the Western Federation of Miners, at least by that name, the union would have a second act in decades to come as the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers, or Mine Mill for short. Linderfelt stayed in Cripple Creek for a while after the strike, taking work as a quartz miner and mine guard until 1910, when he left the country again, this time for Mexico, as a foreign legion mercenary in the army of Francisco Madero, 
who was leading a revolt against the infamously corrupt sitting president, Porfirio Diaz. As labor historian Anthony Di Stefanis notes, there's a bit of ironic foreshadowing in this particular adventure. In joining Madero's forces, Linderfelt was, without knowing it, putting himself in the service of John D. Rockefeller, whose Standard Oil Corporation was seeking market expansion in Mexico. Rockefeller believed a Madero presidency would give him better access to Mexican petroleum distribution networks, which under Diaz had been controlled by a British monopoly. The official stance of the Taft administration was to support the Diaz government, but Rockefeller's friends in high places helped Madero get money, weapons, and ammunition across the border undetected. Many of these weapons found their way into the hands of American soldiers of fortune, collectively numbering around 5,000, who tended to have more wartime experience than the insurrectos recruited from within Mexico. One minister in the Diaz government would later complain that they could have put down the Madero insurrection in two weeks if only they had been able to keep out American mercenaries. Linderfeld shows up in American newspaper reports in May 1911 as the leader of an assault on a bullfighting ring in the Battle of Ciudad Juarez, the battle which won the war for Madero, forcing Diaz to resign and flee to Spain. His discharge papers show he was mustered out of the Foreign Legion the day after the city surrendered. His next order of business was finding a way to either smuggle or fence his share of the booty of jewels, silks, cigars, and opium he had seized as part of a looting operation with 14 other legionnaire officers. Linderfelt then made his way back to the familiar confines of southern Colorado, first taking up work as a miner in Cripple Creek, then as a guard at Berwind, and finally taking command of Colorado National Guard Company B, into which he would recruit several of his war buddies from the Philippines and Mexico campaigns to help elevate the unit up to a military standard he thought was too great for mere weekend warriors to take on. To Linderfeld's mind, Captain Van Size and the other officers in the vicinity of Ludlow were just not willing to do what was necessary, and so he was, as he put it, pushed into the limelight. On December 30, 1913, a little after sunset, the Ludlow postmaster, Susan Holleran, headed to the railroad depot with some mail to go out on the number two train. Arriving there, she came upon a small commotion. A National Guardsman, Corporal Cuthbertson, had just been brought in injured after having been thrown from and then stepped on by his horse. A doctor was brought in to see him. Then Linderfelt barged in, like a mad lion, as Holleran put it. The story that began to emerge was that Cuthbertson had been thrown when his horse tripped on a strand of barbed wire that Linderfelt believed had been stretched across the road intentionally as a booby trap. He began shouting at the other soldiers gathered at the depot to find the person who had set the trap. At just this moment, Louis Tikus, who had also come to meet the number two train, arrived at the depot, accompanied by a teenage Greek immigrant, a union member, who was immediately identified by one of the soldiers as the trap setter. Linderfelt dragged the boy out of the depot to interrogate him, but as the boy spoke almost no English, the lieutenant had to content himself with pistol-whipping him in the head. Holleran describes the boy as looking, quote, very dilapidated when he was brought back in. Then Linderfelt brought Tikus outside. With a revolver in Tikus's face, Linderfelt told him that the men under his command had just returned from old Mexico and that they were going to, quote, clean out every goddamn striker and dago in the country. Ticus was taken under arrest, though he would later be released and no good evidence was ever produced that anyone had set any barbed wire traps. The day after the barbed wire incident, a Ludlow resident named Brian Orff was walking toward the depot with his cousin, Helen Ray, a school teacher from Missouri. 
when he was stopped by a detachment of soldiers guarding the depot who told him he'd have to come back another time. The colony was being searched for weapons and the depot would be off limits until the search was over. Orff, who was 17 and who had no connection to the United Mine Workers, asked how long the soldiers would be there. One responded that they'd say as well as they damn well pleased. This being 1913, Orff took umbrage at profane language being used in the presence of a lady, and he asked the soldier to apologize. Instead, the soldier placed him under arrest. Two guardsmen took Orff to see Lieutenant Winterfelt at Water Tank Hill, a barely perceptible rise on the plain to the south of the railroad depot, which for all its topographical modesty was universally agreed to have critical strategic importance, given its location and its unimpeded view of the tent colony, the depot, the rail lines, and the main road to Trinidad. A machine gun was mounted on Water Tank Hill, pointing at the tent colony, in case the search being conducted there should encounter any resistance. Witnesses would later describe the beaming joy with which Linderfeld bragged about how effortless it would be to mow down the whole colony from that location. Orff pleaded his case to Linderfelt, telling him of the soldiers' use of profanity at the depot, and Linderfelt replied, quote, I would not blame that fellow if he had taken the butt of his gun and hit you in the jaw with it. That's the only way we can teach you ignorant people anything. He then added, evincing a very unorthodox take on Christian doctrine, I am Jesus Christ, and my men on horses are Jesus Christ, and we will be obeyed. For the first month after the arrival of the National Guard into the strike zone, an order by the governor prohibited strike breakers from being escorted into the mines, and a 10-man detail was posted at the depot to enforce the order. Governor Ammons believed, when he called out the guard on October 27, that the strike might soon be solved by mediation. He seems to have seen the calling out of the guard as a way to end the escalating tensions that he thought was keeping both the union and the mine operators from the negotiating table. But efforts to negotiate a settlement over the next few weeks even with the direct involvement of U.S. Labor Secretary William B. Wilson, were not fruitful. On November 27, before his final proposed settlement plan even went to a vote, Ammons rescinded his order preventing scabs from entering the mines in the strike zone. The primary mission of the Colorado National Guard was about to take an abrupt turn from preventing strike breakers from entering the mines to preventing anyone from interfering with strike breakers entering the mines. In 1936, over 20 years after the events in our story, the attorney and legal scholar Frank E. Cooper published an article in the Michigan Law Review that surveyed the existing picket law of the day, finding that even in the 19 states that provided the right to peacefully picket, the legal protections were so tepid that they could barely be distinguished from the restrictions imposed by states that outlawed picketing. So bleak was the climate of jurisprudence on labor rights, Cooper wrote, that courts had no trouble finding that pickets were not peaceful and therefore illegal, even when they entailed no acts of violence. He wrote, quote, The making of grimaces is considered a display of force, and the use of a single epithet brands the picket's conduct as unlawful. The mere display of banners may be deemed intimidating, close quote. In fact, a number of court cases in the early 20th century questioned whether the notion of peaceful picketing wasn't a complete oxymoron in the first place. Picketers claimed they were merely airing a grievance in public, but were they, by gathering in large concentrated masses in close proximity to their place of business, not implicitly threatening what would develop if they didn't get their way? In 1918, the Alabama Supreme Court declared that picketing was intended, 
quote, not alone for purposes of publicity and persuasion, but for coercion and intimidation as well, close quote. In 1905, Judge Smith McPherson of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Iowa wrote that, quote, there is and can be no such thing as peaceful picketing, any more than there can be chaste vulgarity or peaceful mobbing or lawful lynching. He argued in defense of that portion of the population, be they potential customers, potential employees, or scab workers, who were just naturally timid, frail even, and who were not only entitled to go about their business without being subjected to threats, but who needed even to be spared from the possibility of a, quote, mental disturbance. In 1920, the Supreme Court of Iowa ruled in Ellis v. Journeyman Barber's International Union, holding that, quote, Force threatened is the equivalent of force exercised because it amounts to intimidation and duress in either event. Picketing is usually an invitation to violence. Where it is persisted in with a declared purpose to continue until its victim is destroyed, it is a challenge to violence of the most effective kind. It is not in normal human nature to submit to it except under the duress of superior force. The decision continues. A humble American citizen who seeks by sheer industry to make a modest living is driven into covert hiding in his own shop like a cowering dog into his kennel, while a powerful organization, through its officers, camps upon his shop entrance and holds a scorpion over his door. Its vigilant thrust is intended to wound every entrant, whether owner or employee or patron." Close quote. It must be noted that this case involved only a single picketer outside a barber shop. In a landmark Massachusetts decision from 1897, the court found that when picketing made scabs feel uncomfortable, it constituted a form of moral intimidation. The deciding judge wrote, quote, intimidation is not limited to threats of violence or a physical injury to a person or property. It has broader signification, and there also may be a moral intimidation, which is illegal, close quote. But this ruling was not unanimous. One of the federal judges hearing the case was Oliver Wendell Holmes, whose dissent noted that the common law doesn't prohibit persuading another person to abandon their work, as long as the persuasion is truthful and nonviolent. Holmes wrote in his dissent, quote, It cannot be said, I think, that two men walking together up and down a sidewalk and speaking to those who enter a certain shop do necessarily and always thereby convey a threat of force. I do not think it possible to discriminate and say that two workmen do. There is a notion, Holmes continues, which latterly has been insisted on a good deal, that a combination of persons to do what any one of them lawfully might do by himself will make the otherwise lawful conduct unlawful. I think it plainly untrue both on authority and principle. Colorado in 1913, there was an anti-picketing statute on the books. The legislature had voted to repeal it, but in May 1913, in a move that was surely seen as a sign of things to come for union organizers, Governor Ammons vetoed the repeal bill, asking the press in the rhetorical style we today call a concern troll, why open the doors again to turmoil and bloodshed in Colorado? The United Mine Workers, though, considered the anti-picketing bill unconstitutional and believed that case law would bear this out. In the previous year, Edmund Shumway, the president of the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company, had filed for injunction against picketing strikers in Louisville and Lafayette in the northern fields, 
who Shumway said had, quote, terrorized the strike breakers working in the mines with their use of, quote, public bells and whistles in the towns neighboring the mines. But the judge hearing the case denied the request, saying there was no evidence of any picketers interfering with mine property and that the rest of it boiled down to what he called a quarrel between union and non-union miners, which the court took no interest in. Speaking before a meeting of union miners on October 2, 1913, Ed Doyle, the secretary treasurer of United Mine Workers District 15, conveyed the union's position on picketing. Quote, I am of the opinion that our right to do peaceful picketing and use every peaceful and lawful means to prohibit men from taking our work at the mines or to influence them to join the organization after they have secured work in the mines is a right that we cannot be denied. Even a sheriff's or governor's office should not deny us that right. And if they deem to do so, as indications they are going to, my advice is that we ignore their orders and exercise our rights as citizens to use all peaceful and lawful means to accomplish our desired end. He continued, I am going to ask you men tonight to appoint committees, say two or three men, to meet incoming trains and picket the various places where men can be met and talked to and to explain to these men why we are striking and the reason why we are entitled to all that we demand. Explain to them why it is necessary to have an organization and make every effort to have them assist our cause by refraining from working in these mines. The deputy sheriffs will no doubt endeavor to stop your committees, and if they do, my advice to you is to refuse to stop picketing, and if the deputy or sheriff sees fit to arrest you for violating his instructions, submit to the arrest peacefully, notify the district office, and we will see that proper legal steps are taken to protect you in all your rights. Do not be afraid to go to jail for a short time if you have to, and in all cases refrain from using loud, boisterous, or profane language. Let reason be the weapon with which you fight. As soon as the governor lifted the ban on importing strike breakers, recruitment campaigns went into high gear wherever there were concentrations of workers, Toledo, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Chicago. Joplin, Missouri was a favorite of Western mine operators dating back to the 1893 Western Federation of Miners strike due to its high percentage of native-born workers who were predominantly anti-union, at least by reputation. In mining camps in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho at the turn of the century, the common slang for scab was Joplin man. Mine owners were often able to present these new job opportunities along lines of racial solidarity, Anglo-Saxon workers helping Anglo-Saxon industrialists overcome their difficulties with restive foreign laborers. But an equally effective recruitment strategy was simply to tell prospects that the strike had ended and to offer a number of apparent freebies like train tickets, living accommodations, and favorable terms on parcels of land. In an episode that would have been right at home in the HBO series Deadwood, newlyweds Robert and Mildred Brockett met with an employment agent in Joplin, Missouri, named Robert J. Copeland, on December 19, 1913. Copeland, who had been with CF&I since 1883, told the Brockets that there had been a strike in the southern field, but it had been resolved, and the company was now trying to fill the spaces of the small number of striking miners who would not return to work. The Brockets were given a contract for 20 acres of land near the Delagua mine, for which they would pay $10 out of each paycheck until it was paid off. They were also promised a furnished cottage to rent until they were able to build a home on their land. When they arrived, they found the cottage completely unfurnished, so they paid $250, well over $5,000 in today's money, to furnish all four rooms hoping to attract boarders. 
The boarders they brought in didn't like the look of things in the camp, though, and skipped town after three days. By the end of their first week, the Brockets were denied credit at the company store, the superintendent telling them their grocery orders were coming in too fast. Mrs. Brockett took not being able to feed her husband while he worked as reason enough to head back to Joplin, but the superintendent told her they were not at liberty to leave until they paid back the money for the train fare and their bill at the company store. The Brockets managed to secure a pass from a lieutenant in the militia and were able to leave after just 10 days' work, the entirety of Robert's pay deducted to cover costs. When later questioned by a congressional committee about the land contract, Copeland, the company agent, replied, I didn't talk to them about any land at all. There was no trouble anywhere till they started that little Ted Pond. And everybody says the purpose that was because they was there watching all them trains coming and they couldn't ship in no scab, see? We used to go up in the track and stop the train. Stop the train and then we go see all the boss cars and open them all up and see if there were scabs in. Because they used to bring a lot of them in with the trains, see? And then they put them in a boss car and then they close the door. And we made this, the, the conductor, whoever it was, to open that door, see if there was any strikers in there, I mean, any, any scabs in there. One time we find one, and he got out, he jumped the door, we never see it again. He went like, just like a jackrabbit. <laughs> yeah, never see him. Linderfelt's Company B was an anti-picketing unit. One of its main patrol duties was to clear Water Tank Hill whenever groups of strikers would camp there. For their part, the strikers found Water Tank Hill an ideal spot to mount a picket for the same reason the militia liked to stick a machine gun there from time to time. As Linderfelt once put it, that hill has command of the military situation around Ludlow. In oral histories, organizers would later describe these pickets in this way. A strikebreaker would walk off a train at Ludlow and perhaps be approached by a group of strikers of the same nationality who would greet them in their own language, welcome them into the colony for dinner, maybe a little wine and conversation, and the next day they'd walk over to the big tent and fill out a union card. It worked fairly well much of the time, without resort to any obvious threat of violence. Depending on who you believe, there may also have been some more coercive examples of picketing. Linderfelt, Lieutenant Jesus Christ, in his testimony before the Industrial Commission described typical picketing efforts by the colonists as much less congenial. Picketers would spend the evening on Water Tank Hill with a keg or two of beer, he claimed, and approach men getting off the train in small groups with rifles or pistols in evidence, asking where they were off to. If the answer was off to work, they'd tell the stranger, you just keep drifting. Linderfelt was probably not the most credible source on how pickets were ordinarily conducted, but we know from the armed attacks on Berwyn Canyon in October that the colony leaders, John Lawson, Louis Tikus, and others, weren't always able to get everyone in the colony to stick to the plan. Accounts of Union strikers intimidating scabs aren't very well documented and seem to be the exception to the rule, but they weren't entirely unknown. Even today, scabbing remains perfectly legal in the United States. As this episode goes live in the first days of January 2024, workers in United Mine Workers District 20 in northern Alabama are back at work after two years on strike 
having failed to win a new contract with Warrior Met. As District 20 Vice President Larry Spencer put it when the strike was called off, we couldn't get the coal production slowed down. Throughout the strike, Warrior Met made record profits using strike breakers from Pennsylvania and West Virginia, where the number of mining jobs has cratered over the last few decades. I close this episode with a brief coda on Edvin Shumway, the owner of Rocky Mountain Fuel, whose unsuccessful injunction motion against picketers in Boulder County signaled hopefully to the United Mine Workers that the Colorado anti-picketing law might soon be declared unconstitutional. On December 16, 1913, there was an explosion in the lower level of the Vulcan Mine, a Rocky Mountain Fuel property, about 50 miles north of Aspen, Colorado. The mine had not been sprinkled, though the sprinkler system was fully operational. When a plume of coal dust was released by a fall of coal, it was ignited, perhaps by an open lamp, by a controlled charge, or by sparks from pickwork, killing 37 miners. Shumway went out to the mine the next day, reportedly to help with rescue efforts. Soon after his visit, he took ill, though, and was confined to his bed for the next four weeks, dying on January 11, 1914. His physicians attributed his death to the fumes he inhaled during his time on rescue duty, which were thought to be after damp or carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide poisoning, though, was apparently not covered in Shumway's life insurance policy because three years after his death, his widow, Emma, filed suit with the London Accident and Guarantee Company, claiming that his cause of death had originally been misreported and that she had just recently learned that her husband had died not from inhaling gases in the mine, but from drinking gasoline, a whole tumblerful, believing it to be water. Effigy is written, produced, and read to you by Chris Schoen. This episode's cold opens were read by Rita O'Connell and Guy Massey. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to help ensure it continues, the best way to do that is to share an episode with people you think might like it or to post about it on social media. If you prefer to make an impact anonymously, by all means, please give the show a nice five-star rating under the protection of a mysterious and clever username. The episode you've just listened to is a free episode, and that's because each episode in season one is completely free, with no paywall, no ads, and no unique bonus material for subscribers. But nonetheless, if you are able, I hope you can subscribe to the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash effigypod. I pay my voice actors in cash money, and I have a few other expenses like books, subscriptions, hosting, and audio plugins. But just as importantly, the more I can pay myself for my time, the more time I can spend on researching, writing, and producing, and the stronger the show will be, and the more special material I can deliver to Patreon subscribers. It doesn't cost much. Tiers start at just $3 a month. You can write to the show at effigypod.gmail.com, and you are encouraged to do so. You can also follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky by searching for the handle effigypod. You can also find all the social media handles on the podcast website, effigypod.com, which has show transcripts, a bibliography, and a very nice picture of mules. Thank you very much for listening. Till next time, bella ciao.